The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we have come to our last class in sensuality. We'll all be getting our degree, certificate. We know how to be in this world of sensuality. Experts, sensuality experts. (laughs) So you can go out in the world as sensuality consultants and advise people. It's from an article that uh, Rodney Smith, one of the more senior insight meditation Vipassana teachers here in the West, has taught at uh, Common... uh, (laughs) IMS and Spirit Rock for a long time and has been the main teacher at at the Seattle Insight Meditation community, uh, though now has kind of stepped away from that role. But he had an article a while back in Tricycle, and it was called The Undivided Mind. I don't know if I shared this with the group uh, among our resources, but just a couple paragraphs He says, the most important understanding for a lay Buddhist is the immediate availability of awakening. Awakening need not arrive after a long, protracted practice history. Always thinking, I got to get rid of something, I have to develop something, which is the mind in the world of sensuality, right? Except maybe in a more subtle end of that world of sensuality. Unless we believe that it is necessary, we deliberately delay our readiness because we are divided about what we really want. We practice until we are tired of preparing for what has always existed here and now. Then we become quiet and surrender. The question of readiness, right, the readiness for awakening, the readiness for freedom, the question of readiness is really a question of intentionality. Do we want this or not? Do we aspire? Are we interested in a mind, a heart that's not dependent on sense experience? Or are we interested, in a sense, in playing in the world of sensuality, getting what we want, getting what we don't want? Now, I know that seems like, well, then I'm just going to judge myself like I... I shouldn't. I, I want to be in the world of sensuality, but I shouldn't. But what's important is just to be honest with ourselves. right? Because we just want to hold the question, oh, I do want to play in the world of sensuality. Okay, well then do it, but let's notice what it does. <laughs> you know, Okay, I want to play in the world of sensuality, so I'm going to go home and I'm going to read news about politics. But in my... If I'm really interested in playing in the world of sensuality, then as I engage that particular part of the world of sensuality, like, what am I getting from that? Or any, you know, maybe your engagement will be with food or, you know, the sensuality of lying in your bed or... But whatever you imagine that you're going to get and you're going to get something that is going to be meaningful in some sort of meaningful way, but are we actually seeing if that's so? 
And then if we do something else, like we did the last half an hour, and we try to sustain an interest in non-attachment to whatever, it doesn't matter what was showing up in our experience, pain in the knee, restless mind, peaceful feeling, but we are interested in the non-attachment to that, the letting go of that, the putting it down, or letting it go away, letting it reveal its changing nature, express its changing nature, then what do we get from that? Like, What did we get from that last half an hour set where we, to some degree, hopefully more than usual, sort of were interested in this immediacy of awakening that Rodney's pointing to? So again, that question, or that uh, statement I just read, the question of readiness is really a question of intentionality. Do we want this or not? If we do, we have to look squarely at our competing interests. We can use our time most skillfully by observing the value and limitation of our opposing desires. A fully engaged lay life allows continuous feedback regarding those interests. Most of us indulge our desires rather than learn about their limitations. But that learning opportunity is always present. Again, it is the sincerity of the student that will determine whether her life is a hindrance or support to her spiritual growth. So if what we take away you know, from our eight-week class is I shouldn't be attached to sensuality. <laughs> you know, it's like eight weeks, and all we've done is gain another reason to judge ourselves. Yeah. Stop it. <laughs> Don't listen to music. Don't enjoy that chocolate. You know. Don't indulge in being nervous about what's going to happen tomorrow. Or be de- detached. Don't be touched. Stop thinking the cat looks cute. Stop it, <laughs> you know. Our cat's getting this like, this is our first year with this cat, and it's getting this like really thick coat. It's kind of, it's starting to look like its name. We, uh, Wynn decided to call it Bear. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, it's just like when you see, it, you know, any sort of expression of nature is just like interesting. And I just noticed like, you know, the mind being dependent trying to uh, get something from the cuteness instead of just letting it be. So it's just like an interesting, every single moment of our life, we can be interested in the question instead of imposing another view on who we should be or how we should be, like, what do I want? So if I'm looking for happiness through sense experience, through sensuality, then how's that working? If I'm... If I'm looking to have for happiness through renunciation, how is that working? I don't know if any of you took a look at that uh, article I sent out um, in the last email and then I mentioned at the very end last week. Where Ananda and some householders go to see the Buddha and uh, Ananda speaks to the Buddha what they spoke to him, what they said to him, uh, 
you know, that these householders who indulge in sensuality, delight in sensuality, enjoy sensuality, rejoice in sensuality, for them, right, indulging in sensuality, delighting, enjoying, rejoicing, renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. Yet we've heard that there are young men and young women who delight, you know, who show up, shave their heads, give up their clothes, their wealth, and delight in renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, firm, seeing it as peace. So right here is where this doctrine and discipline, you know, your practice, this monastic practice, is contrary to the great mass of people. And the Buddha said, so it is, so it is. As I mentioned last week, even I myself, this is the Buddha talking, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, someone on the way to being a Buddha, renunciation seemed good, seclusion seemed good, but my heart didn't leap up at it, didn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace. And the thought occurred to me, which is what makes the Buddha, you know, he's just a great practitioner. He was interested in that. Well, that's interesting. Intellectually, renunciation, non-attachment makes a lot of sense to me, but I'm not really... You know, I don't have a lot of enthusiasm for it because it's sort of nice having the palace and nice having this and nice having that. And the thought occurred to him, why not? Why haven't I grown confident, steadfast, firm in non-attachment, in renunciation? And the thought occurred to me, the Buddha says, I haven't seen the drawback of sensual pleasures. I haven't pursued that theme. I haven't understood the reward of renunciation. I haven't familiarized myself with it. That's why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, doesn't grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace. So makes a lot of sense then that we'd want to spend our days being really intimate in this world of sensuality, really intimate, seeing the gratification, the danger, and the escape or seeing the limitations of sense experience and seeing the joy of letting go. Because if we approach our spiritual practice that as something like we should let go, we shouldn't be attached, we should have this sort of sterile disinterest and sensual, sensual, sensual experience, you know, we're going to become a bittered, embittered sort of grump afraid like afraid of being happy because <laughs> that would mean we're attached or that we're going to you know want to hold on to it or something like that but instead we can just be interested in and and this is especially true with renunciation like it should be provocative, what a big deal. The Buddha and others, it's not just exclusive, although it seems to have been made into sort of a much more important theme in Buddhism than in other spiritual traditions. But this teaching on the joy of letting go, the joy of renunciation, the freedom of non-attachment. So, you know, and I think it is pretty intellectually compelling when we hear read about it, but why wouldn't then, if it makes a lot of sense, why wouldn't we really take it up as a study? 
like in all places of my life, like, so what does it look like in my relationship to the cat? What does it look like in my relationship to my partner? What does it look like in relationship to my practice? What is it, you know, like relating to being a so-called, you know, Buddhist practitioner or whatever you call yourself, meditator? What does that look like relating to that with non-attachment, with my friends, with the issues, social justice issues that I care about, other kind of political things I care about? What is non-attachment? The joy of non-attachment, the joy of letting go. How does that manifest, express itself? What might that look like in all the different places of my life? Around food, around sex, around sleep, around these sort of obvious sensual experiences that we have. Wealth, travel, you know, pleasant, home. Because it's a, in the same way that we've got, and especially meditators, you know, they get more sensitive and they get really good about, yeah, this food really works for my body, this food doesn't work for my body. These kind of clothes really work for my body, these kind of clothes don't work for my body. This kind of car really works for me, these other kind of cars I don't want to have anything to do with. These sort of causes really sort of fit my wise brand. You know, now, now that I'm a wise, sensitive, you know, meditator, then, yeah, this is... And we get, like, we're really good at, uh, on a sensual level, we're really good at refining our happiness, aren't we? It's like those sort of gross things that other people indulge in, we don't indulge in them. Because we know, like, this is even a more refined sensual pleasure. Even our meditation, like, you know, we could, you know, be watching mainstream press, the news, but we chose to sit. But that can be just as much like, that's just so much nicer, right? Yeah, I mean, it is nicer as a central experience. I mean, I found that way, found it that way tonight. Um, so, but are we, like Rodney Smith says, are we actually interested in looking for the happiness of renunciation. And generally speaking, we're not interested in looking unless we've started to see some of the drawbacks. There's kind of a tipping point where we've, like, as we pursue those more refined pleasures, you know, nice clothes, nice home, nice vehicles, Nice this, nice that, nice community. And uh, realizing that hungry ghost personality is still there, just a little bit below the surface, always wanting, wanting more, always afraid of losing. And then at some point, when we're comfortable enough in realizing that even that doesn't do it, then we start getting an interest, and we've studied the teachings on renunciation, then we might be willing to take up the theme. For some of us, that may be now. Like, now we're really going to do it. And for others in the room, we won't. The course will end and we won't be that interested in renunciation. I mean, every once in a while, when we get really burned in the central world, you know, something we were depend- the mind was dependent on, then gets taken away from us, 
and then we might be interested. Like we've been healthy for a while, and then we get a bad flu, and we're just like out of commission for two weeks or more. And then that can kind of, oh, maybe I really, like we feel betrayed, and we might, as the Buddha says, beat our breasts and lament and cry and blame. And, but we might go, wait a minute, maybe I can't actually count on the sensual world in the way that I was just unconsciously being dependent on it, not realizing it isn't dependable. Is there another way? And then we might be interested in the theme for a while. But the hardest thing for us lay people, and probably for monks and nuns too, is to keep it in mind, to actually, not pretending to be non-attached, but being actually interested, is there happiness in non-attachment? Is there real, sustained, resonant happiness in non-clinging, non-attachment, letting go? Available. Happy, like Thich Nhat Hanh says, happiness is available. Please help yourselves. It's like, are we helping ourselves? Because we have to, we have to cultivate that thing. We actually have to be interested in it. And any moment of our life will do, right? Because then we look like at the potential of non-attachment to this, you know, whatever's showing up in that moment. So it's like we don't need special circumstances to relate on the happiness to relate or to uh, reflect on the happiness of non-attachment, right? Because it can be non-attachment to this. So did you notice that in the sit, it's like so interesting to see how quickly that habit of the mind to sort of establish itself, like even with physical sensations that are, I mean, not necessarily terribly painful, but just not pleasant, and then the sense of self, the sense of getting fixed is like in opposition to that, those sensations in the leg. In opposition or a leaning into this. But moment by moment by moment, the, that part, that tendency of the mind to sort of fix, establish, cling, grasp, reasserts itself. And so in that moment, there can be a recognition of that and a letting go. Because the letting go is realizing that if that attachment isn't renewed, letting go happens. So it isn't so much that you're letting go. It's just that you're deciding not to renew your contract with that attachment. Right? You're just not going to do it in the next moment. So there's a flow right? because things are naturally passing away. And this is an important point the happiness of non-attachment, the escape, is realizing that things go away anyway. The attachments, if they're not renewed, fall away. We're never far, we're never far away from that free fall, from the reality of non-grasping. It's, it's just, the distance is just, in this moment, not renewing attachment. That Believing in attachment, not being dependent on the mind grasping, fixing, getting attached, reacting, in all the many, many ways that the mind establishes itself, fixes itself with meaning, right? It's always involving meaning, and the meaning always involves a sense of a somebody, a self. 
and then the, the grasping the, on that meaning, holding that meaning in a way. Some famous words from Ajahn Chah, but very simply, succinctly, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete freedom and peace. And the Buddha says, in whom there is no provocation and for whom becoming and non-becoming are put aside, this one beyond fear, blissful, without grief, whom the devas, the angelic beings, the more refined beings, can't even see. It's like the letting go is the it's similar to saying that we become nature. Right? The absence of self, selfing, grasping, self-centered activity, then whatever this is doesn't stand out from all of nature. That's the idea, like the devas can't see you. Like the, one of the interesting things at the time of the Buddha, partly because just philosophically it was evidently sort of a interesting debating point. But what happens to an awakened being at the time of death? It was sort of like the stumbling block for philosophers. And often the Buddha wouldn't even respond to people when they would ask similar questions, depending on who the person was and where they were coming from. And, um, you know, on one occasion he didn't respond, and then Ananda was sort of asking him afterwards, well, why didn't you answer that person's question? And uh, if I have this right, and then one of the, at least one, in, on one occasion, the Buddha said something like, see, even now people don't understand who or what the Buddha is. Right? Because the Buddha is, meaning if the mind is not grasping, that mind is not, fixing itself with meaning. So that activity that we say is the Buddha, that person, that body-mind that we say is Buddha, is just nature. So the idea Buddha, you know, like when I say, oh, Buddha, what's going to happen to you when you die? It's like that question presumes something that's not even here now, right? Because in that activity of a Buddha there now, there's no part of that mind-body activity that's fixing itself as an identity apart from everything else. So even now, you know, the Buddha would say, even now the person didn't even understand who I am, let alone who or what I'm going to be at the time of death. Even now the person is misunderstanding what's here, that like there's something there, right? Because we wouldn't say that about, you know, we see a bunch of bushes, you know, what's going to happen you know, we, when you die? Or, you know, we, we don't say that about other natural things. What happens to the weather, to today's weather when it turns 12 o'clock midnight? I mean, these are sort of silly questions when we're talking about sort of aspects of nature. But we presume something is here when we talk about each other as selves. And so this is the thing about the uh, escape is the removing and the, uh, of that um, wrong idea 
right? So the practice is sort of, you know, there are many approaches to the escape. One is just uh, tuning into the joy, like realizing that there's joy and not being fixed. And we discover this just in ordinary moments when greed, anger, and delusion, you know, the neurotic, selfing tendencies, self-drama tendencies of the mind quiet or cease, either in a deep state of concentration or playing basketball with a friend and you get, you know, we say we get, I got lost into the game, lost in the game, or knitting or, you know, whatever it might be. Doing your walking meditation practice. And we get a little sense that, you know, the the flavor that comes through is that it's okay. It's always been okay. And in that moment, it's like, how could it not be okay? That's the flavor. And it's not a philosophical argument or point. It's like a direct sense coming from that reality of non-grasping. Right? There has to be a sense of a somebody in the middle of this mess before there's fear and uneasiness and greed. But when that meaning of me as sort of this entity is allowed to fall away, not be renewed, then where's the problem? Where's the problem in the activity without that independent or that separate entity, separate agent? The Buddha says, lose the greed for pleasure. See how letting go of the world is peaceful. There's nothing you need to hold on to and there's nothing you need to push away. And here's a great line from Sylvia Borstein, and I think in her book on the Paramis, desire pulls so hard, it's surprising to find that it is empty. This is really neat to see, like wanting, wanting, but when we look at it, it's just not what we thought. It's, there's nobody behind it. There's nothing behind it. It's empty. She also said uh, in the book, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake is the name of the book. It's a great book, by the way. We used it for a long time in the Sunday and Wednesday talks. Um, Maybe a year ago we were using it. But anyway, in that book she says, I need to keep rediscovering that the pain of the struggle is greater than the pain of the desire. If I develop the habit of restraining myself, I'll enjoy the relief of feeling desires pass, right? Like we have the tendency to get attached, but I'm going to refrain and just observe the attachment. I'll remember that, I'll enjoy the relief of feeling desires pass, and I'll remember that desires are not the problem. Feeling pushed around by them is, right? And we're pushed around by desires because we take them personally. So it's not that desires are the problem. It's getting pushed around, the attachment to desire. So this is a good thing to memorize, actually. So if somebody asks you, so what's the problem that you're practicing to resolve? It's attachment to desire. It's not about having desire. It's getting 
being confused by desire, establishing a sense of self that desires. Instead of, well, yeah, there's desire now. In this moment, there's desire. It's this feeling, this activity of mind, but it's just this activity of mind. It's just this feeling. I'll continue to have desires, Sylvia says or writes, of course, because I'm alive, but they'll be more modest in their demands. There's a great article, should have put it out for folks, uh, written by Ajahn Amaro, a a British Buddhist monk. And uh, he talks about, uh, the title of the article is Just Another Thing in the Forest. And he's uh, practiced in the Thai forest tradition. And he talks about, in this article, like one of the nice things about being out in wilderness or in more natural environments is the sort of pretense of self it's just a little harder to maintain because you're just another thing in the forest, you know, just another thing in the forest. And it's just interesting, like when you're around other animals, like, and some animals are afraid, but some animals, it's sort of like, you're just another thing in the forest, like, you're not going to hurt me, you know. It's like you see that with squirrels, even in the city, you know, it's they've kind of grown accustomed to human beings. They won't let you get too close, but you know, unless you feed them, then, then they have a special interest in you. And, uh, and even the way that there's a lot of aspects of the monastic lifestyle that really supports this just being another thing in the forest, you know, where you dress alike, you sh- all shave your heads, the nuns and monks all shave their heads the same way, and the customs, the sort of affect or etiquette is very similar it's interesting, you know, you can't, if you go to monasteries, it takes a while to remember everybody's names. I mean, partly because they have poly names, but partly because they all look alike. You know, and it's like the, the distinguishing, it's just a little bit harder to kind of, and they're not, they're not sort of uh, on purpose. The etiquette is not like doing a lot of branding, you know, like I'm this kind of person or, I'm that kind of person. So you can, um, I mean, we can even in our own lives just uh, explore that a little bit, at least in moments. That uh, not standing out. It's such an interesting thing, you know, where we feel the need to stand out, but then not from a place of fear, but just a place of like an experiment, just just being another thing in the forest. You know, when you're on the bus or at a party or hanging out with your family at Thanksgiving, you know, just to be another plant in the forest, another sibling, another human being with a personality and a body and stories, you're a plant, you've got your stories, you've got your body, you've got your life history. And it's just like kind of seeing it in this way instead of, uh, you know, I'll let you be special if you let me be special. Which is more how, you know, we uh, take care of each other. (laughs) 
this is where good friendship, good Dharma friendship can be. It's like, you know, and we here at the center encourage people to be to form small groups. I mean, we have it a little bit every other week in our Buddhist studies class, but, you know, the group's are always changing. So just an encouragement to have long-term friendships where you can sit down and, event, you know, it isn't long before one of the people in the group is going to have some really difficult or really beautiful circumstances, and they'll be sharing that. And then the other people in the group can really, the other friends, they can, like, really be there not kind of pretending like or being scolding you shouldn't be attached. Like really there, really hear, hearing, feeling, but not um, not reinforcing the, the drama. But, but not being cold or insensitive and not being uh, judging like, and not like faking being a Buddhist or faking being detached, but just like letting it be what it is. It's really, it's really kind of a, a great gift we can give each other to realize it's hard, but that's all it is. It's really difficult now. Or to realize it's really beautiful what's going on, and it's just that. And it's, the, it's often done without even words, but there's just a, a vibe that we offer each other. You know, you could call it the vibe of equanimity, the vibe of non-fear, the vibe of understanding that sensuality is just what it is, but it isn't more than what it is. It's not worthy of being dependent. So these are some of the areas you can share in your small groups. Um, and you know, going back to what uh, uh, Rodney Smith said, you know, about competing interests. And just your own interest in letting go, your own interest in non-attachment. You know, just that, uh, yeah, what your aspiration is. Where, where are you interested in finding real happiness in your life? And then the, another thing that might be relevant is, in terms of sensuality, is looking at and talking, sharing in your small groups about like the dependence on meaning and identity you know, I was sort of just being funny and, and calling it branding. But like our dependence on the story, like my history and who I am, where I've come from. And just sharing like how you catch yourself sort of, because uh, that's the sensuality of the story, like liking having a story. I've got a story about who I am that I like. And I'd like you to get it and kind of know it. And every once in a while repeat it back to me in some version so that I know that you know it, you know, and that we've got a, some consistency about who I am, right? So that that'd be interesting. And then places where in your life where you're noticing like a kind of spiritual exhaustion, like I don't need to be dependent on the story. I don't really need to be dependent that you got the story right. Like you can think whatever you want to think about me, and I'm okay with that. I don't have to be the police making sure you got it right. And that, that I find interesting. You can talk about that or share about that too. And of course, anything from what you've learned through the course of the eight-week class around sensuality. Remember, it's always good to take time to introduce yourself. So if you don't have your name tag on, you're taking the time to say your name. 
uh, to the people in your group. Sit close so you don't have to speak loud. That way you won't bother the other groups. Really, after the person's done, after the three minutes is over, just in a silent way, one way or another, just be grateful to the person for just opening their heart and sharing. Remember, you get three minutes. Even if you don't have three minutes of stuff to share, just do the reflection and silence. Then the next, then the next. And then just have an open conversation for the last five minutes or so. So maybe, uh, maybe a little less than 60 tonight. So let's count off by 18. Do you want to start, Rick? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.